This book has argued that space and urbanization struggles have been critical in the production and subjugations of surplus and subaltern populations throughout capitalist history. Likewise, planning and urbanization politics will be essential to build a communal future beyond capitalist exploitation, reproductive alienation, and state oppression. A new consciousness along these lines will have to address this contradiction between the legacy and prospects of spatial planning and elucidate the links between past and future urbanization struggles. In that regard, we will also need a critical history aimed at transforming rather than endorsing the apparatus of planning. I hope this book will encourage others to join this effort. Capitalist urbanization is a relentless battle between social groups with antagonistic spatial projects and strategies. Being aware of one's own position within this field of forces is critical to prevail. This self-awareness can be supported and strengthened by theoretical work, but collective practice will remain the key terrain to grasp the scope and complexity of these struggles, for they generate contradictory maneuvers in concrete conjunctures. History, as a distillation and synthesis of the structural meaning of these strategies, is the name we give to a theory of such practice. The present is the dynamic intersection of two trajectories. The first connects with the past and carries the weight of the archive, of memory, of the dead and ruins within us. Discourses and institutions, hegemonies built in asphalt and stone, possibilities denied, absent promises and defeats. The second points towards the future and speaks the language of planning, brimming with opportunities for liberation. This is why the present is simultaneously fixed and volatile, settled and open. From this juncture, both paths, the history and the plan, are vectors of struggle. Their meaning and scope are up to us to define. Those who is to chart the course of communist urbanization must look in both directions. This is the Urban Political. The podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. So welcome, dear listeners. We are here today to discuss Alvaro Sevilla Butrago's new book, Planning Against the Commons. And we are joined by the author of the book and two great interlocutors who will introduce themselves just in a bit. Uh, thank you so much, Nitin, for convening this intellectual commons. Thank you, Alvaro, for writing this very provocative book. I'm Sai Balakrishnan, Associate Professor uh, at the University of California, Berkeley, and my work largely looks at urbanization in India uh, outside the city at the intersection of agrarian and urban studies. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you so much, Nitin, for the invitation, and thank you also, Alvaro, for writing this, and Sai for introducing yourself. It's great to be here. I'm Mara Ferreri. I'm a senior researcher in the ERC project uh, Inhabiting Radical Housing in the Polytechnic of Turin and University of Turin, and I'm also a core member of the Beyond Inhabitation Lab, also in Turin. I'm an urban geographer working on housing commons and temporary urbanism. Hello, everyone, and thanks, Nitin, for organizing this conversation, and, and Sai and Mara for taking time to, to read the book. I am the author of the book, Alvaro Sevilla Huitrago. I am an associate professor at Universidad Politécnica de Madrid, and my work sits at the intersection of uh, urban theory and critical geography and, and planning history. And I'm uh, especially interested in the nexus of uh, urban processes and political economy. 
and especially how uh, urbanization planning uh, policy and design practices uh, shape social change. So this is a it's a book that's that's expansive in its thinking and in its references. Alvaro draws upon impressively draws upon various strands of scholarship situating his own work within very different strands of scholarship. So the book engages with property texts including Linebaugh and Ranajit Guha. Uh, I, I hope we have a chance to come back to Ranajit Guha sometime during our conversation. The book is a wonderful amalgamation of Marxist, agrarian and urban scholars. And this is very, very important because of the inherited disciplinary silos of agrarian and urban studies. And this is what I'll focus most of my comments on. And the book, uh, as someone who teaches in a planning school, uh, the book is very important for designers and planners. It, it covers and introduces us to a host of influential architects and planners, ranging from Friedrich Law Olmsted, Jane Jacobs and the Hull House, urban reformers of early 20th century US, uh, and contemporary quote-unquote star architects, right, including uh, Charles Jenks and Zaha Hadid. But what's really important is that the book frames all of their ideas and practices within a history of commoning, right? Not within a normalized history of private property, but a history of commoning. So it's a very, very, it's an incredibly useful uh, contribution to design and planning. What I also enjoyed about the book, since I teach in a planning uh, school, is its part empirical. So a rich engagement with urban theory, it's part manifesto. So the conclusion chapter is really a wonderful dreaming of other worlds. And for those of us who are in future oriented professions like design and planning, you know, it's, it's a rare combination of a book that engages very rigorously with urban histories and theory. But it's also a manifesto, a call to dream of other possible worlds. right? Um, and also, I think, a rare book uh, because Alvaro foregrounds planners and the planning profession. right? So in the conclusion, he says, how should planners, identities and roles be reframed in a context of communist urbanization? Right? So, so thank you for this, Alvaro. So I want to focus my brief comments on chapter one. It was a chapter that I enjoyed immensely, learned a lot from, and the chapter is called Common Land and Primitive Accumulation, English Hinterlands and the Origin of Planning, right? So generally, when you look at planning history, there's this very common, familiar understanding that planning uh, was institutionalized post-World War II in cities, right? In an urban context. And Alvaro argues in a very compelling way, that we need to go back to the agrarian origins of urban planning, right? More precisely, in his words, the parliamentary, quote unquote, the parliamentary enclosures are a forerunner of urban planning, close quote, right? Hugely important argument. So, you know, just because uh, I think it's important to set the stage, I'll very briefly go over his argument. I hope I'm, I'm conveying it in its uh, richness, Alvaro. Uh, but on the one hand, Alvaro argues that at the core of capitalist planning are modes of regulating private property, right? Cadastres, titles, bid rent curves, zoning. And these are mechanisms that were rationalized and institutionalized during the English struggles over enclosure. Right. So on the one hand, the planning project is fundamentally 
about primitive accumulation. It's various iterations, historically specific iterations of dispossession authorized by the law. On the other hand, Alvaro also reminds us that the planning project is about ameliorating the effects of primitive accumulation. So he writes about the human schemes to compensate the dispossessed for their denied access to customary tenure and to the commons, right? And these planning schemes take on many forms. In chapter two, which is again a very rich chapter on New York and Chicago, he maps out the urban reformers of the early uh, 20th century New York and Chicago and the schemes on designing public parks, right? Like the celebrated Central Park. And the schemes of public open spaces are seen as a way of preserving the commons, but these are projects that allow primitive accumulation to continue unchecked, right? So, so these are really the contradictions of the planning project uh, that he writes about. And, and there are other scholars who have written about this, right? So for instance, Richard Fogelsong uh, in The Property Contradiction, David Harvey, of course, Manuel Castells. But again, Alvaro's book, I find hugely inspiring because we're forced to reckon with the agrarian origins of urban planning. So with that, my main question for Alvaro, and really something that I'd like to discuss with all of you, is, you know, at the at the core of the book, and that's why chapter one as, as an opening chapter is, is so important, at the core of the book is the argument that agrarian enclosures are constitutive of capitalist urbanization, right? You cannot understand capitalist urbanization without understanding historically specific enclosure movements. Right Now, if we had to explore this argument in its full richness, I mean, the question that arises is, how do you write a history of urban planning that does not exclude the agrarian? Right? Methodologically, what does this entail? So, for instance, if you're writing about the urban commons, and the planning project in New York in the early 20th century, you need to understand the agrarian question of Northeastern United States, right? So the enclosure movement of Northeastern United States is very different from the enclosure movement of England in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, right? So what would it mean then to write a theory of the urban commons that transgresses the agrarian-urban divide. And I ask this question because Alvaro's book uh, ambitiously takes on a number of cities, early 20th century, New York and Chicago, Weimar, Berlin, Milan, uh, Italy, the 50s, from the 50s to the 70s, and then contemporary Milan. The references and the scholarship in these chapters is largely urban, right? So what are we missing out on? Because again, because you give us such an important provocation in your opening chapter on the agrarian enclosures, what do we miss out on when we don't engage the agrarian in understanding these specific cities, right? Uh, what would it mean to re-embed these cities within their agrarian hinterland, right? So, so I'll just... Um, Stop here, but but thank you again, uh, Alvaro, for writing this book and looking forward to our discussion. Thank you very much for inviting me today. I, I really, really enjoyed reading this book and I, I felt it was something incredibly rich and detailed in the, and in the breadth 
of not just theoretical literature the book engages with, but also the breadth of empirical examples. And I think there's something that really helps making some of these provocations come to light in terms of the images, in terms of the also engagement with, with fiction or with prose and poetry. So there's something really, really dense in a good sense, thick about this book uh, that I truly enjoyed. So perhaps I'll start, I'd like to start my comments on the book by saying that the first time I I read Alvaro's work was in um, an article published in Antipode, Capitalist Formations of Enclosure, Space and the Extinction of the Commons, which to me at the time, starting on a Marie Curie Fellowship on Housing Commons, was incredibly uh, useful. And what I found particularly useful and what I think is fully developed now in, 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 in the book, well, it was already fully developed in the article, but really the book gives this much broader and much kind of richer overview is, is the tension, the dialectical relation between enclosures and commoning. And in a sense, that attention to the dynamics of logic of spatial erosion, of capturing, is something that on an abstract, in a, in a more universalist logic of capitalist accumulation is kind of easy to grasp, but it's, it becomes much harder to grasp when you're actually looking at specific histories and specific path dependencies and specific ways in which actors on the ground articulate imaginaries and practices. And so I think in this sense, what I found, what really drew me in the book was this forensic analysis of these enclosures at multiple levels in multiple historical contexts and cities. But what I also always found and really valued is that th this is always put into tension with a politics of hopeful exceeding, a politics of the this kind of the constant redrawing of the boundaries of the possible that comes to the rescue in the moment when you're feeling that capitalism, the capitalist horizon is, is the only horizon possible. And so in this sense, I think I was similarly to say, there is a question also to the reader perhaps in my case, not as a planner, but as a pedagogue in a planning school. So as a geographer who teaches planning students around uh, what Nick Blumley would say, the real tragedy of the commons, which is their invisibility, their inability to be seen, partly because of the historiography of, of planning and, and, and a certain normative understanding of spatial, of the organization of space and the role of professional, of urban professionals in this. And partly because, and I think what the book does really excellently is because seeing the commons requires a real shift in vision. And I think in this sense, the book definitely provides theoretical and empirical ammunition to continue challenging planning orthodoxy around the conceptual framework, around, in a sense, the perpetuation of that semi-delusional sense of a progressive, of a sort of a vague progressive Dimension, uh, that doesn't often uh, engage with the realities of that progressive ideal. And I think in this sense, it brings planning back into the picture of what planning is meant to be moderating, in a sense, or, or, or ameliorating. And I think showing that intrinsic co-production of planning and process of accumulation is particularly useful. I guess my second comment, and this is more specifically around chapter four. So the book uh, really travels between different cities and different, not just cities clearly, but it starts with the enclosures, with the English enclosures, and then moves through Chicago, New York, Weimar, Berlin during the Weimar Republic. And the final chapter, the final empirical chapter concerns Milan uh, in northern Italy and situating it within what was a very 
productive and politically, I would say, quite experimental and quite radical moment in Italian history, often framed through this concept of autonomia. And I think what was particularly interesting for me there was, in a sense, positioning something which I had first-hand account of, which was a struggle around the planning project. Uh, in the north of the city, in the Isla neighborhood, within these longer-term attempts to reframe and disrupt certain forms of, of urban planning and um, and ref- reframing the city. Now, clearly, this is um, in in rereading this chapter and also sharing it with with activists and scholars who had been involved in the struggles. It was incredibly. It, it was, I suppose, very flattering to find that what was done about. 15 years ago, could make sense within the genealogy. I also felt that, in a sense, the commons of creativity, and and this is something that I suppose I've been exploring in my work as well, particularly around temporary urbanism and the cultural politics of temporary urbanism before and and particularly after the global financial crisis in uh, in Europe, is one of these frontiers of accumulation, is one of these frontiers of recapture. So perhaps, I suppose my my question there or my or my comment really has to do with the spaces of hope within that in a sense coming to the end of that chapter i felt there was less less of a hopeful exodus than in other chapters and perhaps this is because creativity is one of these areas where there is a lot of critical literature clearly in, in kind of unpacking it and, and and showing how it's been mobilized by different forms of accumulation and recapturing but i I suppose what I would have liked to to see or I would like to hear your thoughts about is is precisely how and in what ways do you think the commoning of creativity could somehow be repurposed, reclaimed, and to what extent, in a sense, all that is bundled up in those debates in terms of place marketing, place making, branding, and all all the different professionals which are sort of summoned and called in to what extent can they reframe and to what extent they can actually engage with this and i think it goes back to to this question of 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 being able to not just recognize the promise of the potential of that alterity of the commons which i think for example in my work on temporary urbanism is absolutely central to the discourse of temporariness or a certain understanding of meanwhile spaces and diy and all of that but that is part and parcel of forms of capitalist enclosures rather than actually open up different spaces. And so I guess for me, the question is, where would be that space? And perhaps extending that question, is that space just a space of action within the professional planning? Should it also include other urban actors and and, and which ones in, in that case? Thanks, Mara. It's really difficult to follow up after what Sai and you said, but uh, I'll try. I think my sort of like uh, arrival point to Alvaro's work was very similar through that Antipod article, but also through the chapter that you wrote, Alvaro, in uh, the Implosion Explosions book. And I think for me, what was interesting is you're pushing against the sort of grounding of planetary urbanization debate in the long 1980s and you pushing it to kind of, you know, calling it ex novo extended urbanization in the book, pushing it much further and then, you know, trying to understand the primitive enclosures and a decommoning of agrarian landscapes in, in the English countryside. 
And I was quite attracted towards that because I always had this sort of uneasiness towards planetary organization hypothesis, uh, which sort of invisibilizes, um, I think, the longer durée of kind of planetarity, uh, so to speak, and uh, how interconnected but yet very specific trajectories of organization have existed since much longer. And, you know, there's also been a tradition of uh, people like Abu, Abu Lohid, who wrote about uh, even longer timescales of planetarity. So, so that was kind of the starting point uh, or the point of intersection where I was reading, of course, Sai's work and then Alvaro, your work and kind of, you know, putting two plus two into five. <laughs> so that uh, adding this one from my kind of, you know, activism, uh, long-term activism in the Delhi region and in North India. And uh, so in, in that sense, the book was very interesting for me because uh, not just from the point that you start, which is kind of, you know, a very intimate look at the the processes of enclosure and primitive planning in the English countryside, which, uh, of course, I was very familiar with uh, through the book on wastelands of Vitero de Palma but, um, and other works. But uh, I think, Alvaro, what, what's interesting in this book, perhaps, is you take us even a little more beyond, no? because you're looking at uh, not just wastelanding, but you're looking at uh, practices of commoning. And also, sort of, you're looking at urban peripheries. You're looking, it's sort of like a multi-scalar perspective on the countryside and uh, i also enjoyed how you sort of take us to other chapters where you know even in in new york like uh, there is a sort of commoning with uh, kind of you know livestock and pigs and all all that kind of stuff and then how the urban park movement kind of tries to disrupt that i'm not saying that it, it it's a very similar story to what happens in the parts of india that i study but there, there's some so, sort of uh, resonances with that process, you know, kind of also the the process of Weltstadt that you discuss in Berlin, this sort of reinvention and kind of, you know, the reinvention of centrality, the right to centrality and kind of, you know, you, you talk about the Keats life and then how that's disrupted and then, you know, kind of this uh, grand Berlin, you know, at the center of the Prussian Empire or like even the German Empire afterwards is sort of like re-embedded within that fabric is something that I see a lot of resonances with what's happening in with Delhi now, like, you know, with the reinvention of Delhi and kind of reinvention of its axis and kind of, you know, the commons and all this sort of like bourgeois parks that emerge along the riverbanks in Delhi and kind of, you know, it's very interesting because uh, you're sort of doing, you're opening through your book. Uh, and I, I would say like, you know, that's why in, in intersection to size commons, why it is really a great pedagogical material in planning and architecture schools is that it's opening a sort of genetic comparison, no? Like to to appropriate from Jenny Robinson's work in comparison, it's it's not uh, um, an incorporated comparison, or it's not kind of you know saying that okay, you're gonna find the same things everywhere, but uh, it's sort of finding some sort of genetic patterns that uh, are inherent and. In, capitalist planning processes and what's interesting in the final chapter is that how you sort of try to uh, you, you try to sort of synthesize and you try to isolate things from work of radical planners and and you know work from john friedman and from others try to synthesize a few principles for that can allow planners to think about 
a form of com- communist planning, right? Like, so it's not communist, but communist. And uh, that for me was very interesting and uh, why I would use it uh, as a teaching material for a very long time, at least. Something that was lacking for me a little bit, and uh, that's that's also a subject of a paper that I'm coming out with, the sedentary perspective on planning and commoning, right? Like, so one of the groups that I one of the subaltern communities that I've been working with during my PhD and even in my postdoctoral work is a transhuman pastoralist, right? Like, so in India, 7% of the population is nomadic. It's non-sedentary. And that's uh, true for a large part of the world. It's true for North Africa. It's true for West Asia, Southern Europe, parts of Spain, uh, Greece, Portugal, South and Central America, of course, North America, that's been disrupted as a process. And, you know, there's like rangeland pastoralism. But uh, somehow, what I've been looking at is how transhuman pastoralists don't see regimes of property in the same way. They don't, uh, they believe in forms of transient commoning, right? Like, so for them, the waste of property becomes commons again. I mean, of course, it's it, it has to do with a different ontology of space, but uh, I think it's an in- interesting process in itself. And somehow that's uh, sometimes missed out because we have a very sedentary lens also on uh, on planning and on commoning, processes of commoning, and also on the agrarian, right? So, um, so that would be my question to you. Like, uh, what, what, how would you sort of bring in if you were if you were to non-sedentary ontology or non-sedentary dwelling in these landscapes but thanks for this work it was really pleasure reading your book uh okay uh, um thank you thank you all thank you all for such uh wonderful and and generous and, and generative readings of uh, the book it's, it's it's so great to to hear you know, people who are producing such brilliant work on some of the topics I deal with in the book, talking, speaking so highly of of uh, it. So I think that what I would what I will do um before going into the responses to the specific questions is perhaps, and this will hopefully make it easier to to situate and locate you know the the particular answers to the questions raised raised during the conversation later on so because yes of course the, the book focuses on urban planning uh but in a way urban planning was an entry point to deal with a broader problem uh, the problem of urbanization of urbanization under capitalism and how it uh, articulates how it articul- articulates social change and spatial change throughout history right and and perhaps one of the reasons why capitalist urbanization is uh, so fascinating such a fascinating phenomenon is is because it is so paradoxical and and contradictory in many many ways but one of them and one we usually pay less attention to is the problematic relationship between urbanization capitalist urbanization and the production of collectivity on the one hand capitalist urbanization it it depends on on uh uh, the production of expanded collectivities, right? It feeds on collective energies and collective capacity, you know, to, to produce this always larger and more complex spaces and social and spatial divisions of, of labor. It depends on the, the proliferation of a multiplicity of uh, encounters and connections between people, between 
places, often distant places and, and regions, uh, to produce these this ever-expanding networks that are sustained by collective labor. But at the same time, and this is one of the main ideas of the book, capitalist urbanization tends to decollectivize society in the sense that even as it produces these new social spaces, it also deprives them of the communal basis that often characterizes the production of space in other uh, historical periods, in, in other political economic uh, regimes, right? And, and this is not an accident. And this is one of the main arguments of the book. This is not an accident. This is not uh, like the spontaneous result of the ebb and flow of social change. This is an active strategy pursued throughout history, sometimes by specific groups, social and economic elites and states. And spatial politics plays a fundamental role in this strategy, and particularly uh, spatial planning understood as a set of techniques and, and practices and discourses that try to bring about long-term social change by regulating urbanization. So yes, uh, in order to bring all these elements together, you know, the commons, uh, this need uh, to decollectivize society, space, uh, planning, and so on, in order to bring all these elements and ingredients together, uh, what the book proposes is that we look at capitalist urbanization as a site of struggles, as a site and an outcome of struggles between competing social forces, trying to organize space according to their own interests, and sometimes also trying to disorganize the space of their rival, of their social antagonists. And I see this struggle around urbanization as part of a broader, part of a broader conflict under capitalism, the, the problem of reproduction, the need that capitalism has in order to secure its own continuity and expansion, the need that it has to secure a coherent, stable social order in the face of its own destabilizing tendencies, and particularly the problem of social reproduction, how to reproduce popular groups, uh, working people as subaltern classes, as uh, classes that are willing to work and live and reproduce themselves within the narrow rules of this system, the narrow institutions and practices of this system, right? How do you do that? Well, among other things, what you uh, try to do is to neutralize the capacities of these groups to reproduce outside the system, both in material and cultural terms, and you try to erase their autonomy because it feels, it can feel social antagonism. And, and well, you know, uh, this is the stuff of the commons, self-reproduction, self-management, autonomy. This is the stuff of, of commons. The book defines commons as shared self-managed resources and spaces that allow communities to reproduce themselves independently from direct market and state influence, right? So the commons uh, foster this precisely the kind of things that jeopardize the reproduction of the capitalist system. And this is why we see this effort to decommunize society uh, throughout history. And then why space? Uh, what space has to do with this? Well, not always, but in most of the cases, especially when we look at commons that are essential for the reproduction and survival of uh, the mode, the commons have a strong spatial basis. They have a, these practices of commoning have a territorial anchor. So space becomes part of the picture and space and spatial politics are used in order to try to triangulate this attack on the 
commons. So yeah, so this is in a nutshell, like the stuff of the book. Uh, it explores this ability of deprived uh, uh, communities to to build spaces of autonomy around these shared resources and, and cooperative practices, and and how the attempts to dismantle these spaces have influenced the evolution of urban planning, of spatial politics, and capitalist urbanization for for more than three centuries, right? In these different places that I explore in the book. Now, focusing on your comments, let me try to do some summary because they, of course, were going in, in different directions. So first, uh, Sai, yes, of course, the, the first chapter was like a strong statement about the need to look beyond cities when we're trying to understand what planning does, especially if we're taking seriously this this attempt to to see planning as an intrinsic planning and spatial politics spatial politics as an intrinsic aspect of uh, capitalist political economy throughout history we need to look at different geographies and places not only cities but also what what's going on beyond cities and especially we need to look at the relationships between cities and their hinterlands and this is one of course one of the reasons why i chose to begin the historical narrative outside outside cities, and particularly I'm, I'm focusing in, in England. And it's interesting to see that what's going on in, in cities in, in England at that time, well, in terms of the innovation of spatial policies, you find that the, the advancement is, is the progress is really slow in, in, in cities. And meanwhile, if you look at the countryside, you see this bold uh, attempts to restructure uh, uh, rearrange property structures in in a way and with a radicality that you you cannot find in 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 cities. If you look at London, for instance, London. I use this example. London after the uh, Great Fire of uh, 1666 is rebuilt, uh, preserving the the property structure. And even if there are like large schemes to try to reorganize London, nothing can be done because uh, property interests are so entrenched. Meanwhile, if we look at the countryside, we see what, what is going on is, is uh, completely the contrary. We see this massive reorganization of uh, property structures, land uses, and especially all the livelihoods and, and rights and customs that were attached to, to access to land through uh, common rights and, and customary practices. So yes, uh, uh, I think it's it's uh, important to look at, to incorporate this, this kind of perspective. Your specific question, Sai, was mentioning how a history of, of uh, urban planning that transgresses this urban-rural divide might use this perspective more consistently perhaps and and to trace these trajectories also in other uh, periods uh, of course of course in the book i in from chapter 2 on i i go back to cities and i focus on cities and in chapter 2 and chapter 3 we still have a sense of how agrarian and rural practices persist somehow in the industrializing in industrializing cities because of course, those dispossessed in the countryside, uh, who then need to go to cities to to work to find uh, a way to eke out a living, uh, they they still carry their practices and, and customs and habits with them and try to reproduce them in in, in cities. And, it, and this is actually a source 
of the new industrial commons that appear in these uh, places where in places such as New York or Chicago and, and, and Berlin, you see that in, in some parts of the city, livestock still coexists with uh, humans, you know, goats, cows and sheep. Uh, they still coexist with uh, with uh, humans for a long time. And actually, I would say that uh, this is one of the main axes of urban policy during this period to try to erase these rural practices from urban city contexts becomes one of the main concerns of states and uh, municipalities and and the elites, because uh, they are trying to consolidate a, a more urbane, urban conception of what a city is, what belongs in the city, and what does not belong in the city. But yes, you're right, Sai, this is only a remnant of uh, rural practices that goes into cities. Uh, I don't focus on, on this specific problem of uh, the ongoing reorganization of urban-rural relationships during these later periods. That would be amazing. Simply, it was a bit too much to, to take on uh, for this uh, project. But yes, that would be amazing to see like a revisionist planning history or urban history focusing on those uh, kind of relationships, specifically focusing on, on them on later periods. And of course, connecting to some of the currently ongoing dynamics of transformation of uh, the countryside across the world, which both of you, Sai and, and Nitin, are dealing with in your in your work. And, and I hope we can. And, and actually, I see some of the issues, of course, that I uh, deal with in, in not only in chapter one, but also in, in chapter two and, and three, this remnants of how how rural practices and agrarian practices coexist with more what we usually understand as urban, uh, properly urban uh, practices uh, still coexist for a long, long time. And how this overlapping uh, produces uh, new conflicts and, and contradictions, which may perhaps become an, an, an opportunity at some point. And perhaps I will go later, uh, I will come back to this idea later because I would like to flip the format uh, of the conversation a little bit and actually address some questions to to all of you right now Mara thank you for thank you for sharing the the chapter with activists in in Milan it's so great to and I would love to to hear what they're thinking uh, about it your question yes of course is the great dilemma uh, I would say and actually I this is this is again. This is something that I would like to also address the the, the question to you: What's the room for spaces of hope when we see how these creative capacities, these grassroots creative capacities, are being increasingly and apparently more easily uh, subsumed and incorporated and captured by these uh, uh, real estate machines, by municipal? projects to regenerate, quote-unquote, uh, regenerate obsolete areas, again, quote-unquote, obsolete areas of the city and, and so on, and how these uh, creative potentials are, are being co-opted and, and incorporated into, into the machinery of, of capitalist urbanization. Difficult, of course, very difficult question. And as, as you yourself, you, you also showing your uh, research on, on London. It seems that in order to survive, these collective projects, bottom-up projects, are increasingly becoming less and less radical because if they want to, to find some kind of support from municipalities, because of course these projects are sometimes initiated by people who are living precarious lives and 
and they need to to find a sort of uh, source of livelihood of uh, uh, some sorts, even if trying to to maintain their uh, their commitment to this uh, kind of uh, place-based and and more uh, grassroots projects. But they apparently become less and less radical and more easily to to co-opt. I would say, but this is of course a, a very, if you will, a very easy to say this uh, from. From this space, uh, talking from from a certain distance, from this per- from these uh, processes and projects, I would say that uh, the only opportunity to preserve uh, this uh, radicality is uh, actually to to offer something that cannot be captured and subsumed, something that puts antagonism at the center of these uh, projects. Of course, this is very easy to say, very difficult to do. I would say that this kind of projects uh, can only come from, and also like trying to answer to one of your questions, what what's the role of planners of the profession within this this kind of difficult dynamics? I think that this kind of more radical projects can only come from outside the the profession understood as an institution. This doesn't mean that planners can't be part of of these processes, but as I suggest in the in the conclusion of the book, and of course as Nitin mentioned. This is connecting with the tradition of radical planning, especially as as framed by John Friedman. Uh, planners need to engage this kind of projects. They need to learn the pedagogies of of commoners, but within these projects, they are just they're just another commoner. At most, they are people who know the who have certain technical skills and can operate as mediators between uh, communities. Or communes and and public institutions, uh, local state or whatever. But I don't think that this we are going to see any kind of really progressive transformation around these uh, projects in initiatives such as those we are witnessing in in recent years, where planners in cooperation with municipalities try to promote commons try to foster the development of, of commons in in particular places, of course, always uh, linked to strategies of urban regeneration. And as you, Mara, have, has, have um, explored in your uh, research, and, and I show also, I hope, in, in the final chapter on, on Milan, this kind of uh, experiences are very ephemeral. They come with final date in which... Uh, they disappear, they are dismantled, and you know, normal urban development, normal again, quote unquote, normal development becomes dominant in these areas once the once common strategies in previous uh, phases have you know cleaned, revalorized uh, this these areas in the imaginaries, in the local imaginaries. So again, perhaps I'm, I'm a bit pessimistic in in this case, but I don't think that we are going to see this kind of more radical and transformative uh, developments initiated f- by planners or or the state. This doesn't mean that the state is not important or that planning is not important. And I should say this because I say this several times throughout the book and some people are saying that this is a book against planning. This is not a book against planning, among other things, because I think planning is too important to, to be left in the hands of, of elites and, and, you know, of certain groups. It's too important, as well as the state. They have to be part of the picture 
but in a very different in a very different kind of uh, configuration than what we are used to 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 see finally uh Nitin, thanks too for your comments i would say that i have i i I'm happy to hear that you you're finding these resonances with what's going on in in India because this was actually part of the strategy in the selection of the cases. I I would say that my hope was that but when when I selected the cases this may be worth uh, dealing with in in a minute. I was trying to examine places that would have uh, a meaning or that could resonate with other locations and processes and also ongoing processes across the world today. And in order to do that, what I the strategy was to, to try to find places which were undergoing important transformative pressure that were immersed in, in these transitional stages and that were important the history of capitalism coinciding with the formation of new accumulation uh, regimes in the sense that they are related to the renovation, the historical renovation of uh, cycles of accumulation as discussed by the world systems tradition and particularly uh, Giovanni Arrighi. So the, the, the cases under scrutiny in the book are sites, places, and communities that are experiencing important developmental pressure and stress as a result of attempts by economic elites to gain international prominence. In other words, attempts to promote these spaces as new centers of the capitalist world economy, right? So my hope was that, of course, the, the case selection is restricted to Western uh, countries, but my hope was that these uh, examples would also resonate with other places that are experiencing this same kind of of, uh, of pressure. So hearing that this might also be the case in, in India, not only in relation to what, what is going on in the first chapter of the book, but also uh, in, in other chapters, Nitin was mentioned in this attempt to transform certain places into global spots, right? And what that entails in terms of the, the pressure you have to put uh, your population, society at large, on under uh, is is um, hopefully was hopefully obvious. Then your question about uh, nomadic populations and pastoralisms, the opportunity to bring in a different ontology of space in a narrative that would be awesome. I have to, I would say that this particular research project was about precisely the destruction of those kind of uh, different ontologies. At some point, I, I mentioned this opportunity to relativize the centrality of property in, in our conceptions. Of course, we live in property-centric societies, and even uh, the literature on, on commons has become very property-centric at some uh, point. And I agree with you that um, bringing in this kind of different uh, ontologies of a space where property is just a relative uh, institution which actual practices put in 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 under question and 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 problematize would be very interesting i i think that it would be again a different uh, a different type of uh, book uh, i would say also because you have to take into account that even you were mentioning that this kind of uh, non sedentary practices are very widespread but even in, you were mentioning among others spain but you have to take into account that even in those cases, especially where, where in, in, in contexts that have seen this, this kind, that have this more, this longer trajectory of, of uh, erasure of this kind of practices, 
even if they still exist, they exist within the narrow confines of property-centric property centric, uh, regimes, and they have accommodated uh, within that kind of, of, uh, of system. So even the, the, including the everyday lives of these uh, shepherds and, and so on, don't look like uh, what they they used to in, in in centuries ago. You know, they're again they're also very they revolve around uh, property in one way or other. And the, the spaces they use they're heavily regulated and also organized and systematized through property through a property lens by states. So difficult, but again, uh, really interesting. I was wondering if maybe we can, as I was saying maybe flip the conversation a little bit and I address also address some some questions to you uh, in in relation to your own work and how uh, it can resonate with with the book so in terms of of sai of course yes you focused on on chapter 1 of of my book which has strong parallels with uh, with yours with with your book and also with Nitin's uh, research and and filmmaking and and I was wondering, I mean, Sai, in your work, you you describe how the urbanization of uh, rural and agrarian land makes a profound impact on the social structures of these uh, regions, and also on governance structures as well. Looking looking towards the future and trying to find some some realm of opportunity in here, I, I, I was wondering, you you show in the book that in some cases these struggles become an opportunity for the emergence of new local institutions that try to counteract the progress of urbanization or at least try to secure a, a more democratic inclusion of uh, vulnerable groups in this process and i was wondering how do you so how do you see this this sometimes very difficult and very um, aggressive uh, processes of, of spatial uh, and social restructuring. If you find some kind of room for opportunity in this kind of, of, of uh, processes through this, through this kind of, of the, the opportunity of, of different social groups that, would, that are somehow re-articulated through the process of urbanization and how this may become an opportunity to build new alliances and coalitions and for the emergence of these alternative, more democratic institutions to control this this kind of, of uh, processes and Nitin to to remain within the in the in the case of India and in relation to chapter one of my book and your uh, film Megan the others day I was seeing the not just roads the documentary which I recommend everyone to to watch if they have the opportunity and at some point I was uh, this is actually more implicit than explicit in the in the in the documentary the fact that how this aggressive transformations are experienced on the ground uh, by different groups according to the temporality of the of the process in the sense that for some groups the process is happening too fast for some others the process is happening too slow and these overlapping of different temporalities i was wondering if again uh, trying to to find some positive side to to these processes if if this explosion of different temporalities and overlapping of different temporalities can be can work as an opportunity to again as i said with sai to find uh, hopefully an appropriation of these processes from below and maybe also uh, ground for for new coalitions and and alliances and then mara you have done research in different parts of uh, Europe. And I was actually uh, going to 
to direct more or less the same as the question you you addressed uh, to me a few minutes ago uh, to you but trying to to gain some insight from your experience in different sites I, I have found that in recent years, maybe this is my impression or my, or my perception, but I have found that in recent years, uh, we've lost some of the connections that were so evident in the 1990s and early 2000s between those these different sites across different states and nations and, and so on. I have the impression that struggles surrounding these this experiences that we were talking about have become very local of course they are local uh, and they are uh, entrenched in the local realm but at the same time i feel that we've lost this kind of more uh, international or global perspective that used to be in the picture uh, a couple of decades ago so i was wondering if you see any opportunity to you know to to join the dots you have experience in different parts of uh, europe working with uh, similar relatively similar collectives do you see any opportunity to to transcend this uh local environment trying to establish this broader international platforms that can benefit from from the experience in 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 their in their neighborhoods in their particular places so yeah okay so you know maybe alvaro one of the ways in which i'll start answering your a question and there are many parts to this is you know while reading your book how does reading about enclosures and primitive accumulation mm-hmm. how i read your book as as someone who theorizes from south asia right and i think this is a way of really bringing in a global comparative perspective because india is not exotic india is not unique but the trajectories of capitalism are very different right which means that enclosures and even primitive accumulation and dispossession is going to look very different in india right so, so so when you start with the english enclosures for instance and this was what was prompting my question on the very specific uh, historic trajectories of enclosures in different places you know the english enclosures there 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 was the trajectory of the enclosures of commoners getting dispossessed being forced to move to industrialized cities and and then to really access their means of subsistence including food through the wage nexus right so the category of the propertyless proletariat becomes very important right and and that's a very specific category that emerges out of very, a very specific enclosure movement in england during a particular moment and and of course this itself has been criticized by feminist scholars because even engels when he's talking about organizing the 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 working class in the factory uh, completely forgets the gendered labor of the social reproduction of the family by women right so so there's a lot of feminist scholarship that's pushing back against this masculinist understanding of proletarian organizing in the factory in india just given the very different trajectory of capitalism you know we had a really bad uh, we had a v- very severe covid lockdown in the during the peak of covid in march 2020 and i've written about this soon after it 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 happened soon after my book came out and i wrote about it most of the urban informal workers started moving back to their home villages right because during a major crisis in india and the covid lockdown was one of the most major crises that we've had in in decades during a major crisis a plot of subsistence land in their village 
is their safety net right that's the social re- that offers the possibility of the social reproduction of labor so if you're going to look for enclosures in the form of uh, the landless only the landless if you're going to look for enclosures only in the form of a propertyless working class you're not going to find that in many places right so enclosures and dispossession looks very different so in other words what you have in india and of course rosa luxemburg has written about this it's it's not the complete subsumption of the capitalist outside right the capitalist outside in the form of the subsistence plot of land in the village is what enables capital accumulation within india's very uneven geographies of capitalism right and again this is you you'd be able to understand this if you go back to the agrarian question in india right as it unfolded in india so this question of spaces of hope is a uh, like i said that's what's inspiring about your conclusion because you actually give planners this very hopeful vocabulary but in india i would say that the uh the social movements and even the political uh parties that are most effective uh, are those who straddle the agrarian urban divide right so for instance there is a social movement called the national alliance uh, of people's movements a very very well organized uh, social movement they work both with rural communities that are facing agrarian distress as well as the urban informal uh, workers in the city right because they recognize that agrarian dispossession and the urban informal economy are just two sides of the same coin right and the urban informal economy itself is a form of primitive accumulation right so i would say the spaces of hope really are uh, the social movements that recognize how capitalism works so that you can organize a- across the urban rural divide No, I'm just going to pick up on Sai's uh, comments. I and I completely agree with Sai, and uh, I think that temporalities are sort of implicit within it, within this sort of unevenness. But also, I mean, now with the Bharat Mala program, which I write about in the chapter of the book on territories of extended urbanization that Krishan Schmidt was editing, in which I extend Sai's work and where uh, Sai's left it in the previous. program and then in the bharat mala program the ambition is to actually down some 100 new urban corridors across india so 44 primary and 66 inter corridors and these actually encompass the whole country but the temporalities and are so different because of the unevenness in uh, agrarian reform and then you know the kind of urbanization patterns that uh, came up on them you see a lot of material incompletion when the sort of new corridor uh, programs but also like really like you know massive projects like one belt one road map out on the whole planetary space uh, and i've been sort of like discussing and engaging in experimental comparison with so certain collective called urban extensions collective where we came out also a, uh, with a paper in dialogues in human geography where we were talking about material incompletion and forms of becoming where i mean I'm, i've been looking at the, these sort of like highway corridors coming up in very distant hinterlands of india in northern india especially and uh, they they at times the 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 idea there is not to complete the project but rather to speculate on on the risks and you know kind of you know leave things fallow and leave things untended so the idea is to disrupt but not complete and the disruption is also not full like you know there's there's 
very interesting ways in which people avoid it. And uh, I mean, social movements and alliances are, of course, very, very sensitive and uh, their sensoriums extend much beyond the hours and they always spot these things out and they're always very attentive to them. So I would concur with Sai. That's where the spaces of hope lie uh, for me also. So moving moving somewhat um, back to the boring northern hemisphere and and Europe and and our kind of advanced capitalist ingrained capitalist urbanization processes i i wanted to go back to this question of creativity before i answer alvaro's uh, question um, a few years back i wrote i published in ephemera an article titled the seductions of temporary urbanism and for me there is a question there around a societal and cultural shift and I'm talking clearly from quite a Eurocentric view or perhaps Northern American and sort of quite a Western uh, viewpoint um, around precisely that that kind of the front stage taken by creative professions and creative practices. And uh, this just goes beyond the creative class, but it definitely comes hand in hand with a, with a restructuring of industrial production and a sort of a, a marginalization or invisibilization of, of agricultural production and this kind of the, the, the strong link between urbanization urban life, urbanity, and creativity, right? And um, and I think there's something there which goes to the core of these contradictions and these, these uh, ambiguities that capitalism is, is always generating and profiting from that very much has to do with the elevation of the possibility of creativity for larger swathes of the population in certain areas of the world, while at the same time that process also accompanying a precarization of those same populations. And I think this, to me, is, is important because many of the urban professions, but also the artistic and cultural professions that had historically, in a sense, been in the orbit of the elites uh, in the post-war uh, sort of, I suppose, the economic boom of many of the of the of European countries and, and kind of Western countries kind of had had become democratized to some extent. And so when we are coming to the creative city as a model and the seductiveness of that idea of, of, of creativity, um, that I think Renudo and, 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 and Autonomia was beginning to see in the 1970s in Italy, there is also this kind of the formation of new subjects that enter this space of creativity and enter it in a way that perhaps for the first time also marked that separation between other generations in Italy. I'm thinking specifically now thinking about Italy. So the first generation moving to cities, first generations going to university that also generated this reflection on what type of creativity or what type of professionalization could exist. And I'm kind of, I'm raising this because I think this has, uh, has come on the one hand, of course, we have autonomia's position or a sort of a position around a widespread creativity and creativity being one of the commons to be reproduced, not in this hyper artistic or professionalized way. But on the other hand, clearly the way in which uh, capitalist forms of extractivism and, and recodification of the subjectivity has taken place is through the midst of individual creativity. So there is a decollectivization of creativity, which goes hand in hand with a flattering, I suppose, of these new subjectivities around the idea of the myth of the individual creator. And and perhaps to come to your to, to, to responding to your question, there's definitely been a loss of recognition of social reproduction because that idea of creativity comes with certain elite 
differentiation and certain separation and loss of skills and loss of, of that ability to sustain itself by some populations. But I would also say that after, particularly after the global financial crisis, there has been a resurgence of a thinking around the precarization of, of, of livelihoods also for those who technically should belong to creative to the creative classes. Um, um, you know, and I'm using this term with many inverted commas here. And so I think there is a degree of radicality, which is re-emerging precisely from this breach and this kind of clear contradiction that is experienced, particularly in urban centers. And I'm not talking here about sort of little enclaves of neo-rurals, people returning to the land and doing some kind of uh, middle-class projects. I'm talking about a withdrawal of labor or a withdrawal um, of labor from a certain kind of reproductions, which also, however, is still caught into the seduction of these visions of these ideas of the city and urbanity. So how do you create alliances in this case? And I think much of that has to pass through a reformulation and a repurposing of that subjectivity around creativity itself and around creative labor. And I think at least in my more recent work, uh, not so much about temporary urbanism, but more um, on housing and housing struggles and housing organizing. What I've seen is, is that the ways in which material conditions have transformed themselves in, particularly in core urban areas, uh, has really given rise to, to, to a, a profound rethinking around property, around collectivization of forms of reproduction of livelihoods. And it's true that perhaps we're not at that kind of 1990s, early 2000 type of internationalization of these struggles. However, um, I'm, I'm just you know, mindful of organizations such as the European Action Coalition for the Right to Housing and to the City, as well as many other movements um, for the right to the city, for the right to housing, but also for alternatives, which are, um, in a sense, anti-capitalist in nature, quite explicitly, that try to address questions of um, of social reproduction through forms of, decom um, of, of decommodification of property and housing. And here I'm thinking about all the movement, for instance, for forms of cooperativism that are not uh, through individual property ownership, but through common ownership. And I, I know that, again, I'm, I'm talking about here what, Alvaro, you, you mentioned in the conclusion as this, um, you know, cloistered enclaves of self-absorbed radicality. So I'm trying to say, well, true, uh, there is some of that for sure, but the research I've been involved in um, also as, a, as, a, as an ally of, of planners and architects, uh, for example, in Catalonia, around the, the, the kind of the development of, of cooperativas and sesio de uso, so the types of undivided property cooperatives that just did not exist prior to a decade ago, is, is I think, an indication of this reflection. And it's an indication that is reclaiming centrality not centrality in terms of just city centers, but centrality in terms of recentering forms of, of, of livelihood in cities and in urban areas, a rethinking around, for instance, gender inequalities within the home in relation to neighborhoods. And what I've, I've found, and I think uh, I am hope, hopeful about, is that many of these experiences are spreading, are spreading, and countries, and I'm seeing that uh, not so much in Italy at the moment, although something is also emerging here, but conversations are happening in Portugal, are happening in Greece, are happening in the Balkans, around trying to reclaim different understandings of dwelling based uh, on, um, 
on forms of decommodification. And and maybe just to, um, and I know that cooperativism is something that emerges over and over in the book. And I think uh, in that sense, it, it was a very interesting trade union uh, across the different chapters. And maybe just to end on the fact that some of this is definitely going through a reclaiming of planning and a reclaiming on how of housing policy. So a reclaiming of the role of state planning also in the allocation of land, in the allocation of resources. And I, and, and again, I, I think it's it's central, it's important to um to reinstate that this is not a book about against planning, but it's a book really that tries to sort of trace that potential path and that futurity that Sai you were also mentioning at the beginning. That we are concerned with a different future as well. Like I said, the conclusion is really it's really a it's it's a it's a very inspiring radical manifesto. And you know, when I was just talking about NAPM, the National Alliance of People's Movements, and really their ability to transgress the urban, the agrarian urban divide on page 225 and and you should read <clears throat> some some paragraphs from your conclusion. And I hope I'm not stealing your thunder, Alvaro. But you know, there's this really wonderful uh, series of sentences, right, where you're speaking to precisely that, where you say the highly fractured landscapes of contemporary surplus populations, and that's crucial. Many of these people have nowhere to go. They're not going to get absorbed into any meaningful work. And these are mosaics of national and transnational proletariats and casualized workers, displaced peasants and indigenous communities, a lumpen precariat of informal and undocumented laborers, right? And this is precisely the, 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 the surplus population that Nitin and I were talking about in the context of post-colonial democracies like India. And Alvaro writes, the power to transform planning lies in new local and regional compositions of these groups. Right, which I think is a really, really important uh, insight. Just to add uh, to this uh, latter comment by by Sai, yes, but uh, how to do that? It's so it's it brings us to the problem of you know the coalition of peripheries. How to bring together these peripheries and these surplus surplus populations is the old problem. I wish our friend Stefan Kipfer was here, who knows a bit about has written a bit about this this uh, uh, process as as especially as, as discussed by anti-colonial thinkers and, and Henri Lefebvre and, and, and so on. Thanks, Alvaro. All right, so maybe we, we wrap the conversation there. Thanks, Alvaro. Thanks, Sai. Thanks, Mara. Thanks for this conversation. It was really great uh, and very generative. I learned quite a few things. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. And I will be thanking you for a long time, I guess. Thank you for taking time to read the book and for providing such wonderful feedback. Thank you for the invitation. It's been really fantastic. This book has accompanied me on many journeys in the last couple of months. So I've been carrying it around and annotating it. And Yes, thanks so much, everyone. Thanks you for listening. For more information, visit our website urbanpolitical.podigy.io Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.